You're listening to a Monday Breakfast podcast on 3CR, 855 AM. Thanks for tuning in. 3CR is broadcasting from the lands of the Kulin Nations. True owners, custodians, and caretakers of the land from which we broadcast, we pay our respects to elders, past, present, and emerging, and recognize that sovereignty has not been ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to late 30 a.m. Well, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. How are you, Judith? I'm well, thank you. And uh, I'm a little bit sad that Dean's not with us this morning. I know. I know. Missing his voice already. Missing Dean already. Yeah. Shout out to Dean. Hope um, hope you're having a great morning so far, and uh, that the weekend was great. So Dean's not going to be able to be with us on Monday. Bricky's got uh, family commitments that um, he needs to follow, which is. Totally appropriate, <laughs> but we'll miss his. But we will miss him, and we're obviously devastated. Yes, yes. So, and I'm sure you will at home as well. Yeah, for sure. And um, just to, yeah, so I'm, I've got to be the weather person this morning. Oh yeah. But even before that, we need to say it's October seventh, and a big thank you to Beyond Zero Emissions for the show that was on before us. Another great show. Yeah. So um, yeah, it's it's not too bad. I thought it was going to be colder today, but it's not. I think it's around 17 degrees. Yeah. I did the classic in the morning where you just stand outside for about 10 seconds and you look around. You go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know what to wear. <laughs> not coat. It's not a coat today. It is a jumper. Okay, well, was, good. Yeah. And, uh, you know, here we are, um, like daylight saving and all that, and we, we got in. I feel like we've taken the brunt of it, a Monday morning breakfast show as well. <laughs> it was hard. It was pretty hard getting, was up. getting up. Yeah. Mm, but well, we're here. So here we are. Yeah, here we yes, are. Yes, and, and happy to be here as well. Absolutely. Yeah, so I think I'd like to remind people, you know, last week we had Cam Walker from Friends of the Earth on. Cam was talking about their week of action, which I think started on uh, Saturday, to defend the moratorium. A moratorium was placed on onshore conventional exploration and drilling. This has been in force since 2014, and it's going to expire on June 30th, 2020. So gearing up uh, mm. to, to make sure that that moratorium continues. So lots of ways to support the campaign. And, uh, yeah, I know it's early, and especially daylight saving. <laughs> and we may come but back. you've got to get up active. You've got to, yeah, if you're going to save the environment, yeah. you know, you've got to be onto it. There's a petition you can sign. Just go to Friends of the Earth website, actually, to find out about the uh, campaign. But there's a petition you can sign. And, uh, and you can also join Friends of the Earth and Community Alliances for a state wide week of action and uh, say no to fossil fuel industry either individually or as a community so people are being encouraged to have uh, particular events organize events you can get a group together let friends of the earth know and also there's a demonstration this thursday the steps of parliament house that's thursday the 10th at 12 30 12 30 to 1 30 so i, I expect it will be busy i hope so i think it will I hope so, because, you know, we've broadcast so many stories, and again today we'll be doing that around mm. climate change, the need to keep fossil fuels in the mm. ground, 
And uh, but the biggest thing is to get out and, and do what yeah. you can. And we've seen it in the last couple of weeks. I mean, yeah. the big, the huge climate gathering that happened. Yeah. Yeah. If we can try and do as much as possible whenever the action yes. needs us. And then, yeah. big thanks to people like Friends of the Earth for um, organizing it. And we're going to see that this is coming up in June next mm-hmm. year and we're yeah. going to take action now. You can also take your photo with a sign <laughs> to send off to Daniel Andrews and post online. So, Alice, maybe you and I will mm. think about a photo yeah. with a sign and yeah. try and get that up. So what's coming up on the show today? So we, as always, we have a busy show. At 8.15, we're going to be hearing from Ravi Jain, who has a show at the Melbourne International Arts Festival called A Brimful of Asher. And it's a Canadian story, but oh. it's, um, it's a story about cultural and generational clashes between uh, the Canadian culture and an Indian culture, as in Indian. Okay, yeah. I'm from India. From India, okay. yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's a story about his experience being raised as a Canadian with Indian parents. The story that happens when two cultures collide and you have different expectations from you, from your parents and from the culture that you're being brought up in. So it almost in itself creates a third culture because you are a mix yes. of different cultures. Absolutely. Um, and you're trying to balance these different cultures out. We'll hear a lot more about it at 8.15, but it, it kind of takes... The, the whole story is about a trip to India with his parents and his mum is trying to find him a wife, oh, which okay. he has no idea about until he gets there. Okay. Um, yeah, so we're going to be speaking a little bit more about that. Yeah. And then at eight, we are going to be talking to Janine Leanne, a, is a Wiradjuri writer, poet and academic, and she's going to be hosting an event tonight about the legacy and life works of Auntie Kerry Reed Gilbert, who is an activist and a really well-known writer in the Aboriginal community. And, yeah, we're going to be talking about her. She sadly has passed. So yes. just and, and a, a warning. warning there. Yeah, yeah for people, of, um, Indigenous peoples who might be listening to this morning. Yeah, and she was such a significant person. Yeah. In, in, in writing and she and the memoir is called the cherry picker's daughter yes right? so yeah. we're gonna i think we're gonna be touching a little bit on um aunt kerry's life in general but also about her memoir the cherry picker's daughter right good okay and then we're going to be speaking we're going to have a, an update from uh, peter owen from wilderness society on what's happening with the great australian bite and uh, you may remember that um, you know gosh i think it was it was july early july peter came on and told us about you know they were waiting to see if the environmental plan equinor's environmental plan to drill in the bite mm-hmm. was going to be approved by nopsema do you remember nopsema yeah i remember that <laughs> i remember having the pop quiz on what it meant and what it stood for. <laughs> yeah, so it's the it's regulator for offshore drilling, petroleum yeah. drilling. At that point, um, they, more questions have been asked of Equinor, and they had about 60 days to respond, and that 60 days is up now. So we're going to hear from Peter, you know, where things are at. Oh, brilliant. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. And then around 7.30, we'll be speaking to Rob Brindlecombe, Dr. Brindlecombe from Monash, about India's proposal to phase out plastic bags by 2022, I think it is. And uh, I'll have to tell you, I had no idea there was so much to know about plastic. I'm <laughs> reading some of the yeah some of the things he's written so he'll be coming on and um yeah and then before that last week I spoke this coming up at 7:15 I spoke to Milvan Savage 
and he's written an article with Kath Albury, and they're both from Swinburne University of Technology, about TikTok. And I was interested to know, Alice said... I'm really interested because I've seen this and I just haven't looked into what it is, but I've seen it online. It's a bit of a phenomenon, right? It's It's huge. It's huge. I don't know what it is. (laughs) Well, okay. So we're going to find that out very shortly, actually. So, yeah, a busy morning, as always, on Monday, Bricky. It's always busy. But shall we kick some music? Shall yeah, I some music so. going? What should we go for? Well, I, I'm kind of thinking Archie Roach. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I'm having a, a calm morning. <laughs> dancing with my spirit. I'm dancing with my spirit. I am dancing with my spirit.
the beautiful voice of Uncle Archie Roach with Dancing With My Spirit. I think it's such a fabulous song and a wonderful one to ease us in yeah. this morning, Monday Bricky. Agreed. Yeah. So um, a few months ago, I read um, an interesting, I think July it was. And gosh, the year's just <laughs> moving along fast. Mm. But anyway, I read an interesting article um, in the conversation about a new social media platform called TikTok. That's popular with <clears throat> uh, preteen young people. And it was such a new phenomenon mm. that, Alice, you didn't even know. No. <laughs> you didn't even I know. I had no idea what this is. <laughs> and hardly anyone knew about it. But it did get some media attention last week here in mm. Melbourne. But I'll, we'll talk about that later. Um, but that made me think, yes, I must get in touch with uh, Milovan Savic, who's the first author on that um, article. And he's a PhD candidate at Swinburne who wrote the article with his colleague Kath Albury. So Milovan was at a conference in Brisbane when I tracked him down last Friday, and I began by asking him what TikTok is. TikTok is a video sharing platform, so it's not much different from what already exists in the market, but it's different in a way that it's new and that is rapidly gaining traction among users and mostly among young people. Most of the adults wouldn't even know what it is. So how did it actually come about? Like, where did it come mm. from? That's an interesting question. When I did my research, the app was actually called Musical.ly. So this was like two years ago. Since then, it became crazy popular among this preteen demographic. And then it was bought by another big media giant from China, and they merged it with their other platform that they had. Just to, just to interrupt there, who owned mm-hmm. Musical.ly originally? Who, who designed it? Yeah, Musical.ly was like a, you know, like a social media startup, so it was like literally two guys from China. They just made a, this platform, and once it became popular, once it started trending on app stores and gained popularity, it was bought by... Uh, ByteDance, which is a big uh, Chinese media company. Before buying Musical.ly, they were not really big in the social media industry. They were more news-type company, but this was their step into the social media market. I see. So, so ByteDance had a news focus initially. Exactly, yeah. They saw the success of Musical.ly. They thought it's a worth of investment. So they already owned... The other video sharing platform combined the features and decided to call it TikTok. So the Musical.ly name was abandoned, but all the users of Musical.ly were integrated into this new app. 
Okay, so they just transferred across. So that's how TikTok started. Exactly. I just want to go back to Musical.ly for a moment, okay. which was mainly followed by pre-teens, young people, mm-hmm. and adults didn't know about it. You found out about Musical.ly through your research. I was one of the adults who didn't know what it is, and I started talking to uh, pre-teens, so my study participants, and they actually pointed me in that direction. So that was in Melbourne, wasn't it? You interviewed That was in Melbourne, yes, yes. I was talking to the families in Melbourne. Yes. So musically, I understand, build itself as Mm -hmm. a a a tool for creativity. Exactly. So at the time when it was just musically, it was a lip-syncing video. So the users could make 15 seconds long videos. It's a short form of video. It made it easy for pretty much everyone, to make a really cool-looking uh, lip-synced video on any song that you like. It's more like a form of entertainment and play rather than any sort of social networking that people exercise on maybe Facebook or Snapchat or Instagram. That's how Musical.ly was initially. Yes, for the full picture, they did have all the social networking features from the beginnings, but like when they were promoting themselves or, you know, if you go to the... App Store, if you read the description of Musical.ly at the time, the description would say uh, the world's largest uh, creative platform. It didn't say social media or social networking site, although by the functionalities it had, it could easily be defined as one. You do mention that while Musical.ly was more popular among young people in the global north, Mm -hmm. TikTok has a wider global reach and particularly popular in Southeast Asia. Yeah, that's correct. How big is TikTok now? The most recent statistic that I have, and it can be more than that, it's like 500 million users. It's like the fourth largest social media platform at the moment. Yeah, I also noticed that it has had, TikTok has received some unwanted attention. Can you say Mm -hmm. a little bit about that? Yeah, so so there was a couple of cases uh, in different countries, like legal actions against TikTok. This was in Indonesia, in India in Pakistan, I think. So so for different reasons or similar reasons, they were fined by the relevant authority. And in some of these markets, they were even banned. And what was the basis of the banning? For these Southeast Asian sorry, markets, it, they were accused that they are allowing or, or facilitating the exchange of pornography and other inappropriate videos on their platform. Is this your sense that this goes on? It's very hard to make that kind of assessment because, I mean, it might happen. It's not black and white. The whole cultural lens is to that, I guess. Maybe something that is appropriate in one culture is inappropriate in another culture. So, you know, there's a whole other layer to that discussion. There was a legal action in U.S. by a Federal Trade Commission. Sorry to interrupt. Was that to do with pornography or something? Not at all, actually. They were charged for collecting the data on people younger than 13. Because in U.S. there is a law that regulates that that media companies are not allowed to collect information on uh, users younger than 13 years without parental consent. So that was the base for for that fine that they got. Mm -hmm. And if you've just joined us, we're speaking with Emilio Van Savic about the media platform TikTok and its popularity with preteens and young teens. And to be honest, I've, I've looked at some of the videos that they've put, you know, 15-second videos, which aren't very long, and they're pretty childlike and nothing pornographic at all. And I think, as he said, this is often uh, a cultural matter. It wasn't an issue in the U.S. at all, so... 
Yeah, I think we've got to be really careful about how things like that get labelled. And it was lots of fun, I thought. Do you have an account? Not yet. Oh. No, well, why, no, I feel I'd be intruding. <laughs> you know, I, this is young people exchanging videos and some like one of the ones that I saw, it was just a cat going up and down and with the, the underline of Mr. Sandman, send me a dream or, you know, that yeah. 1950 song. So, mm. so just to come back to TikTok as a media platform and its popularity with preteens and young teens, I was interested to know if I did join Alice <laughs> and if I did get an account. I think you're probably off to get one. I'm just getting that sense. But anyway, what would I be able to do? What would it offer me? So you can still make this 15-second uh, lip syncing video you can also make up to, to 60 seconds video so it doesn't have to be only lip syncing so the, the whole idea is to record your everyday life in addition to that user can post and share these videos on their accounts they can like videos of other users they can comment on videos of other users uh, they can connect with other users so they can follow other users and other users can follow them um, they can send uh, messages to each other. So pretty much everything that can be done on Instagram in terms of interaction between uh, users of the platform can be done on TikTok as well. And it seems like it's become extremely popular with the, the preteen and teenage, early teenage age group. Yeah, exactly. My findings were that it's dominantly among that population. But I think that now with this uh, merger of uh, small previous TikTok and musically, they are kind of trying to move into other demographics as well. So I think it's not probably not gonna stay only among preteens. It's probably gonna try to get into older uh, population yes. stuff. I don't know for how long TikTok will stay around and what's gonna happen, but just looking at the experience of other social media platforms, that's something that very often happens. You know, even Facebook, when uh, first time was introduced, it was only used or mostly used by young people. While now we have more adults or even like uh, elderly people. Well, I've, I've even heard it's unfashionable with young people now. Exactly. Have to talk exactly. to their grandparents. Exactly. Facebook is quite old in a way. I mean, Facebook was introduced in 2004 and I think it went really public in 2007, more than a decade, right? Yes. So it kind of mat matured. Mm. And I'm fascinated that, that uh, TikTok is appealing to young people across the board. You said, you know, from the global north, from mm. presumably the global south, from Southeast Asia. It seems like it's a kind of bringing together of young people and their interests across the globe. That's right. And what is the interesting thing about that uh, is that the company is based in China, so the headquarters. So it's pretty much the first social media that, that got to the size where TikTok is now, so the fourth largest one at the moment in the world, is not coming from Silicon Valley, right? So that yeah, which again I, I find fascinating because the U.S. won't like the fact that TikTok undermines its dominance of the, of the global exactly. social media market. Exactly, yeah. So it's interesting to see what happens next and, you know, what the future brings for TikTok and for social media in general. We said earlier, you know, there were some challenges. Has TikTok resolved those challenges? They did respond to all these accusations. So they, they did try to uh, introduce better monitoring of what's happening on their platform. So, for example, if some of the inappropriate content is shared, the algorithm picks that up and then they remove the content. They also 
introduced removal of the profiles of the users who are younger than 13, but I think it's very questionable how it works because it relies on other users or mostly parents reporting those profiles. So pretty much the idea is if parents realize that their child is using the platform, they should report it to the account. They're young, a young person under the age of 13. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah that, that's yeah. what I meant. Because if you look in the terms of service, they say this service is not for people younger than 13. So I'm just wondering what impact uh, Daniel Andrews, the uh, Premier Victoria's uh, membership in TikTok, is going to have on its popularity. Yeah, well... <laughs> We'll see. I don't know. I mean, I, I had from another, some journalists from ABC, they contacted me with a similar thing. So I, before them, I didn't really, because I don't follow politicians and their social media engagement. It's not really my focus. Um, so I didn't really know that he's on TikTok. But yeah, I guess uh, it kind of just confirms that it's an important thing, because obviously he and his team see that as an important channel to talk to audience. And just what did Daniel Andrews post on TikTok? Well, it was a video of his back as he walked through the corridors of Parliament to the following tune. And that's it. 15 seconds is all you get, which I have to say, I did wow. find a little bit frustrating on that. And of course, uh, well, Alice certainly recognizes she was popping along yeah. there, the Scottish group, the Proclaimers. And that had me uh, listening to the Proclaimers on the weekend as well. So it's all aimed at uh, new voters coming up, clearly. Mm. And uh, so we were speaking with Mila Van Savic, who's a PhD candidate at Swinburne Uni, who's doing his PhD on families, on how families with preteen and teenage children negotiate digital and social media. And I think that's pretty fascinating. That's a fascinating topic. Yeah, yeah it is. And uh, that's how he discovered, totally by accident, mm. TikTok when it, when it was musically previously. But look, for all those Proclaimer fans out there, let's hear a little more from them. <laughs> 500 miles. I wake up, well I know I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be the man who thinks I'm next to you. When I go out, yeah I know I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be the man who goes along with you. If I get drunk, well I know I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be the man who gets drunk next to you. And if I heave her, yeah I know I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be the man who's heaving to you. Every penny on to you When I come home, I come home. 
and that was the Proclaimers for 500 Miles. And Alice, you're telling me that's a big karaoke it is. Favorite. It's a karaoke classic back at home. Yeah. I mean, I've embarrassed myself a couple of times singing that song. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's, it's an absolute classic. <laughs> Great. I love it. Okay. Well, the next, uh, now we're going to be talking about plastic and plastic bags. So just as um, an introduction, the on the 150th anniversary of Mahatma Gandhi's birth, Narendra Modi, India's prime minister, made a nationwide appeal uh, to make the country free of single-use plastic by 2022. Now, originally, the country had planned to outlaw single, six single-use plastic products on the 2nd of October. And, uh, but, however, it's, it's now going to gradually phase out their usage um, instead of immediate, an immediate blanket ban. So Dr. Rob Brindlecombe is a practicing building scientist who manages engineering and sustainability, the engineering sustainability team at Monash, and he lectures in energy efficiency and renewables. And he's got joined us now on the line to explain more about um, plastics and the impact of, or potential impact of what India has proposed. So welcome to Monday Breakfast, Rob. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, great to have you here. And uh, we always really appreciate people getting up early and getting to their phone on a Monday morning. <laughs> so extra thanks. So I'm wondering if you can tell me, you know, what what is the extent of the plastic problems in India, just, just kind of to start with. Can you describe it for us? Well, I guess like many nations around the world, India uh, uses a hell of a lot of plastic. The challenge for India is that it is a much bigger country than many other nations, the second most popular, closely following China, and um, I guess through much of Asia and uh, I guess more developing economies, the challenge is they don't have the municipal management that we've come to appreciate in countries like Australia. So a lot of the plastic leaks out of the system into the waterways and therefore it has a much more direct impact on the quality of life of people. Yes, and when I first heard that India was going to ban some of, some plastic products, I got very excited because I thought, given the size of the country, it should it could potentially make a big impact. Is that the case? Yeah, absolutely. The amount of plastic that they consume have a meaningful impact on, I guess, the global challenge, and I guess also a really great example around the world of what's possible. A nation like that committing to I guess reducing plastic and managing the plastic in a better way, you know, sets a real statement on the global stage to say that it's not just developed nations or rich nations that can afford to deal with plastics. It's those ones that are right at the forefront of the pollution and of, I guess, the economic opportunities that can start to tackle this challenge. Yes, and initially they were going to ban, I think, six different products, but then have decided against the ban, but encouraging people to to reduce their use. Do you know why the change happened? Uh, I don't know, but I guess my interpretation is that plastic is just such an incredible material. It's so useful to our modern economy and to a complicated economy like India where there's so many different levels of the market from sophisticated manufacturing through to street vendors that rely on plastic for serving their product. It's very hard to pull this very useful material out of the economy overnight like that. Yes. So my interpretation is that they've looked across the impact of this ban would have and said, yes, we want the output of reduced plastic and 
change to our economy to allow that to happen. Yes, and um, so so I think when it was first announced also there was some criticism that there had been a lack of consultation around the communities, around you know how it was going to affect people. Uh, yes, look, and to be honest, I'm not across the, on the ground in consultation over there, but I think it is like so many of these bands, you look at it as a, a simple solution to a complicated problem, and it's not until you get down into the impact on individual lives. I think... You know, carbon tax is another great example of this, a very clear economic lever. But the challenge is that the burden of these bans is often um, borne by the individuals when these are collective problems that we all benefit and we all lose from. So you really need to think through how can you create opportunities for individuals rather than expect them to pay the price of the common good. Yes. Even though we all contribute to the common bad, it is, you know, that solution's got to be something that the individual could live with and believe in if they are going to really champion it. Mm, And also, once you get down and do start talking with people, uh, more ideas, I'm sure, will emerge about, you know, how best to deal with these issues. Yeah, absolutely. Plastic, for me, you know, as I said, is a wonderful material and we've benefited greatly from it, but there are real opportunities here and, I guess, it's very easy to sit in a comfortable um, office and talk about these issues, but the reality is that a lot of people make a living through sorting trash in nations like this. So if we can rethink how these products go into the market and we can rethink how the market treats them to actually lift that secondary market for plastics, make it so it's easier, make it so it's safer, make it so it's cleaner, and that there's uh, actually a dignified wage to be earned from it, so what I'm talking about here is really thinking through the complexity of the streams and identifying products and making designing products so they are easier to recapture and they have more value afterwards. So you don't have to sort through the rubbish dump to make a minimum wage. You can actually collect and um, reprocess those materials and sell them at a rate that uh, is commensurate with improving the quality of life. Yes, and I, I was interested reading some of your writing, how much, just how much there is to know about plastic. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're a different, like even in a drink bottle, I think you talked about, you know, there's not just one kind of plastic. And this is the challenge, that they are so flexible and their chemistry is so rich. We've used them to so many different things that the streams are complicated. Even at Monash, where we're trying to really tackle this challenge head on, the amount of material that flows through outside and the ability to determine between that material is so challenging. There are some really great initiatives out there. You're in Australia right now. The Australian recycling label um, done by the packaging organisations is just looking to really simplify the labelling to make it clear for people what they can do and provide feedback to producers around you know, where the plastic all ends up. Because we've all taken this for granted that plastics are recyclable, and most of them are recyclable, but under very you know, strict or very specific conditions. Yes. We can get to a system where it's much easier to say, okay, I understand that is valuable, whereas this one is recyclable only under certain conditions. It makes it much easier to provide that feedback loop to manufacturers around how to yes. produce them. I mean, I even notice it in my day-to-day life because we have recycle bins, you know, that I live in a set of flats units, and uh, we have a notice on the on the bin, recycle bin, no plastic bags. 
and uh, still people put plastic bags in. So it's a constant sort of source of um, of frustration. But also just how much education seems still to be needed, even in Australia. To be honest, the challenge is well, where I got to, you know, a practicing expert in this space, that even I struggle to work out what goes in either of the bins. And, you know, I spend a lot of my time thinking about this. So I guess we've done a few different trials at Monash to explore how you make it simpler. We did one trial where we did just, we had 10 different bins and individual products into each of those bins. It's like coffee cups, which people really struggle to know, are these recyclable? Yes, for that's us right true. Now they're not. It's true. But just having a dedicated bin for coffee cups, even though that bin, that bin was going to landfill, it meant that the things we did want to capture, such as glass, metal, and clean plastics, they had a dedicated bin and people could easily understand what to do. So clearly having 10 bins everywhere is not an option, but there's a really nice lesson in to say that we've just got to make it really simple for people so there's not that ambiguity. Most people want to do the right thing. If we give them the opportunity, they will do so. And Rob, it's Alice here. Um, and I've, yeah, I've noticed the landfill signs on bins. Um, and I don't know, maybe they've been there for a bit longer, but I've only just started to notice them at the moment. And it, I think it sends a really powerful message. Like, to me, it made me really consider that, oh, this piece of, like, rubbish that I'm going to be putting in there, that is going to landfill. Um, and I think it's more powerful when you know exactly where it's going. Yeah, and that's what the study shows, that not only do people have an aversion to landfill, they really do want to do the right thing. And I guess recent studies have shown that on the, the other side of it, if you can put onto the recycling bin what that product might be turned into after it's been used. So, you know, a plastic bottle, this will get turned back into a plastic bottle or even the upside, upcycled into something valuable like a raincoat. So is that, you know, that closing the loop, losing the plastic to landfill, you want to avoid but that you know, positive reinforcement to say, if I do the right thing here and actually sort of separate, that um, this might like, turn into something valuable again, and people really identify with that contribution to closing the loop on it. Yes, and as a building scientist, so moving perhaps to another area, as a building scientist, Rob, who manages the engineering and sustainability team at Monash, what role do you see for technology in the changes that are required? <laughs> oh, sorry. So that, that's a, that's a PhD, probably. <laughs> I don't know. No, no. I just uh, I do love technology. Yes. It's it's always this balance of um, you know, technology's got a really big role to play in this, and certainly better understanding what we can do with the plastic once we recover is really important. We have researchers looking at how you can convert plastic into fuel, so you can uh, avoid it going to landfill and you know capture the energy in it. But I guess there is always this temptation to look to technology to solve our problems. Yes. For me, the application of technology here is upstream. How do we apply the technology so we can make products that are valuable at the end? And obviously, you know, then using, I guess, designing to capture and designing to remake these things. So using technology across the whole cycle rather than just looking at the end output and saying, Oh, uh, we could melt it down and turn it into a space rocket and send it to Mars. <laughs> so, uh, I guess um, anyone interested in this area as PhD study and uh, could uh, look at what's uh, available at Monash. And I notice you have a PhD in in solar energies. That's right. That's right. Uh, good three and a half years of enjoying study there. So I studied how our plants capture solar energy and use it to split water. So looking at how we can feed the hydrogen economy. 
to your point, yes, there's a diverse range of research going on from how we recapture precious metals from waste streams to how we turn plastic into um, fuel. And one of my favourite projects as a student was an initiative where they're basically collecting plastics and remaking it into usable, valuable items such as test tube holders or seats, all those type of things. So really trying to, on the ground, turn things into you know, plastic back into products that people value and avoid landfill. Well, Rob, that sounds really exciting and great to hear. So, and I know Victoria is going to ban the lightweight plastic shopping bags from November, so that's good news too. Thank you so much for coming on the 3CR Monday Breakfast. Thanks for having me. And um, now we're going to have another piece of wonderful music with Thelma Plum. How much does your love cost?
that was Selma Plum with How Much Does Your Love Cost? And uh, now we're going to come back to a story that we've been following for a few months now. And uh, regular Monday Breakfast listeners are going to remember that we spoke with Peter Owen, the South Australia Director of the Wilderness Society, early in July. I think it was July the 1st, actually. I remember that because it was Canada Day. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, July the 1st, about the campaign to prevent the Norwegian company Equinor from exploring for oil in the Great Australian Bight. Now, at that time, NOPSEMA, the National Offshore Petroleum Safety and Environmental Management Authority, had not approved uh, Equinor's environmental plan and had given the company 60 days to provide more information. Well, last week, the company delivered an updated environmental plan, but the content is not yet known, at least as far as I know. So today, Peter Owen joins us on the phone from Adelaide to bring us up to date with what's happening. So welcome back to Monday Breakfast, Peter. Thank you. And so just before we go into the latest developments, for people who may not be familiar with uh, what's happening in the bite and the proposal to drill, can you just describe just briefly, you know, what kind of area does the Great Australian Bite cover? Well, the bite is a, covers a vast area of southern Australia's coastline. Um, you know, it's, it's a magnificent place. It's essentially a marine wilderness area. It's covered in state and federal marine parks in recognition of the environmental importance of this area, you know, home to one of the most important whale nurseries in the world. So there couldn't be a more inappropriate place to be trying to carry out deep sea oil drilling. Um, it's also very rough, very remote, uh, and very deep. So, you know, what's being proposed is, is considered high risk. Yes, and so that's what I was also going to ask, you know, what, what are the risks if this goes ahead? Well, there, there are many. There are many risks. Um, if we remember back 10 years or so to the Gulf of Mexico disaster, uh, that was in the middle of probably the most industrialised part of the world with all of the infrastructure you can possibly imagine to shut that oil blowout down. Uh, and it still took three months and largely devastated um, the Gulf region. In the bite, there's very little that could be done um, if there is a blowout. Um, it's so remote. Uh, there's there's no infrastructure at all. Um, you know, we'd probably just see a, a disaster movie unfolding on the TV screens, uh, you know, for months on end. Um, magnificent coastline, uh, you know, is, is essentially being put at risk uh, by this proposal. Yes, for sure. And I realised uh, last week also, I think it's about uh, 10 years or some an anniversary from the, the Montara oil spill. Yes, well, that was the the last, I suppose, major oil spill in in Australia's waters. Um, what we need to remember is is that oil spills and accidents happen all the time. Um, they're not well reported, uh, but when they do happen on a big scale, uh, we certainly know about them. And then in the bite, it would be almost impossible to, to clean up. There's this mis- misunderstanding out there. I think that if if an oil spill happens, we just bring in this big industrial sponge and clean it all up. Well. That's not the case, and we're still seeing uh, reports coming in to suggest that the, the environment of the Gulf of Mexico is, has still not recovering. Yes. Um, you know, so you might as well be letting off a nuclear bomb in terms of the impact that a massive oil spill has on the marine environment. 
Yes. So the, and the, the of course all the animals and I just mentioned the whales and uh, oh, yes, yes, so much at stake there. So this was the second time I think that Nopsima sought further information from Equinor on their environmental plan. Did we ever find out what further information Nopsima wanted in you know in their se- second um, iteration? Oh, so. Equinor um, released their initial environment plan for public comment just before they submitted it to the regulator. Uh, The regulator then responded with a request for further information. As to what that information is, no one now knows. And 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 then the regulator asked for a further extension. um, And uh, we we assume Equinor have provided them with the information they required and now they're analysing that. Um, but the process at the moment is is not uh, transparent at all. I mean, since the initial um, environment plan, the drill application went in, uh, obviously there's been significant, or we assume there's been significant changes to it because the regulator's certainly been asking for more information and is taking a lot of time to assess that, um, and none of that is is public. So that's that's a concern for sure. Right, and of course the first application was public. Uh, Equinor put it up on their website and we could see it on Nopsema's website as well. But now um, I think Equinor is saying, no, we don't need to provide more information on further conversations. Yes, well, they haven't, haven't to date. I mean, we'd, we would hope that they will um, in time because they've certainly made a big deal about how transparent they are. Um, and how you know important they consider it is that uh, you know the Australian community, which I'd hope they're starting to realise now, is is you know largely opposed to what they're proposing. Um, the Australian community is very concerned with this proposition and and wants to know uh, what's now going on, which appears to be behind closed doors. I mean, Equinor earlier in the process said that they wouldn't push through community resistance, community opposition, and uh, throughout. The last year or so, we've seen almost 20 councils passing resolutions, you know, raising serious concern or opposition to what's been proposed. We haven't seen opposition to this type of thing across southern Australia uh, before. I mean, this, this is unprecedented. So uh, I hope the company understand that the, the Australian community largely don't support what they're proposing and that, they're, you know, they're going to be in for a considerable increase in the level of opposition, I would suggest, if, if there is an approval given. Yes, and uh, some of those councils, I believe, are in Victoria. Yes, there's councils in Victoria across the surf coast. There's councils across South Australia, um, councils in WA. Right across southern Australia, councils have been passing resolutions, um, you know, which is a big deal. You don't see that happen very often, which goes to, you know, how unpopular this proposal is within the Australian community. Yes. So I'm just wondering um, what's, I mean, I know you've been very active, the, the Wilderness Society's been very active. Uh, what have you been doing? Uh, well, a few months ago, we we took a delegation to Norway um, and we met with all of the different political parties in Oslo. Um, we met with the company. We had a number of uh, big community events, which were uh, very well attended by the people in Oslo. The, the Norwegian people were incredibly welcoming uh, and understanding um, when we obviously raised our concerns with regard to what Equinor... Equinor is two-thirds Norwegian government-owned, so it's essentially a company that's majority owned by the people of Norway. So, um, you know, we were asking them to stand with us and help us convince their company to to pull out of of their current uh, proposals for drilling in the Bight. And we were well supported uh, in that. And um, then we um, 
uh, appeared before the Equinor annual general meeting in Stavanger, which is the oil oil town uh, south in uh, Norway. And, yeah, and, and, uh, and, and gave a presentation there as well. Yeah. So, Peter, if people listening want to take some action on this, because it seems like a critical moment right now, is there anything they can do? Most definitely. Um, yeah, have a look at the, the uh, Fight for the Bite, the Great Australian Bite Alliance's website. Um, you know, c- contact the Wilderness Society, contact Sea Shepherd. Um, there's there's a lot of things that are that are happening at the moment. There's a, there's events and opportunities to get involved with activities um, ongoing. So, yeah, there's also petitions that you can sign on the Great Australian Bite Alliance website. But certainly over the next uh, few months, there's going to be a lot happening. So, you know, follow those websites closely and, and also the Facebook pages for events, the Great Australian Bite Alliance Facebook page, the Wilderness Society, Sea Shepherds, Bob Brown Foundation. There's a lot of groups involved in the Great Australian Bite Alliance now. So, yeah. That's great, Peter. Thank you so much for joining us this morning and definitely an issue to continue to watch closely. Uh, thanks for the opportunity. And that was Peter Owen, uh, Director of the Wilderness Society of South Australia, and he's been incredibly active on this issue, as has Bana Laurie from Coloured Stone. You played that song, we'll dance along, out into the moonlight, the moonlight is so bright, almost day, so we'll be dancing the way, you'll see that.
And that's Danced in the Moonlight by Colored Stone with um, Bonalori. And Uncle Bonalori's been very active in the campaign for the to save the Great Australian Bite. So it's been a mooning elder, and it's been great to see the work he's been doing along with Peter Owen, Greenpeace, such an important place. Yeah. And, uh, of, of course, Lady Lash, um, Crystal Mercy, uh, has been singing, writing about that as well. So, yeah, um, we just uh, have to be very active on that issue. Absolutely. And we've now got Janine Lane in the studio with us. So thank you, firstly, for getting up and being yeah. here. Thanks. So Janine is a Wiradjuri writer, poet and academic from South Wales, uh, from New South Wales. Janine teaches creative writing and Aboriginal literature at the University of Melbourne and is hosting a very special panel event this evening at the Wheeler Centre, celebrating the life, legacy um, and Wiradjuri poet, elder and educator, Auntie Kerry Reid Gilbert. So today we're going to be speaking a little bit about Auntie Kerry Reid Gilbert and also her memoir, The Cherry Picker's Daughter. So thank you again for being here. Pleasure. And firstly, Janine, what's your relationship with Auntie Kerry and also this final piece of work, The Cherry Picker's Daughter? Yeah, thanks, Alice. Um, just before I start, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm here on the Kulin Nations and acknowledge that the land was uh, never ceded and acknowledge elders past, present and future. Annie Carey was an incredible person. She was born on the Kalari River in um, 1956 and, as you said, passed away in July this year. And I wrote in, in a review that this year in Canberra's hard winter, we lost Australia lost a literary treasure and a lifelong activist and poet and author and champion of First Nations writing. Her journey, as I said, began on the banks of the Kalara sometimes called the Lachlan, but Kalara is the Wiradjuri name for that river, near Condobolin in central western New South Wales. Um, she was the youngest of eight children in a family that she described as blended 60 years before the term became fashionable. And all eight children were, in, were raised by an incredible person called Mummy, whose name was Auntie Jacqueline Joyce Hutchins, or better known as Auntie Joyce, and she was the elder sister of Carrie's father also the poet and activist Kevin Gilbert. And Arnie Carey's memoir, The Cherry Picker's Daughter, is above all a tribute, I think, to the home front activism of Aboriginal women. Arnie Carey was a teacher, and I had the, the great privilege meeting her nearly 20 years ago when I joined an Indigenous writers group. She was a teacher and an advocate, and she was the co-founder and an inaugural chairperson of First Nations Aboriginal Writers Network, or FANORN is the acronym. And she was also a co-founder of the Us Mob Writing, ACT, which is a long-running Indigenous writers group in the ACT, which started um, under a different name, but in 1999. Uh, in another, sorry, in another um, uh, in article you wrote, the description of that group uh, yeah. it is just so lively. I the really group is really yeah. vibrant, and it's yeah. worth a bit more of a... It's worth a, a bit more of an article and a story on its own yeah, over, the, over so. these 20 years, just as a writer's group and it's on its own. But Arnie was also a trailblazing writer. She strengthened the voice of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people through her writing, her mentoring, and above all, her kindness and her inexhaustible generosity. And before I mention the memoir in, in particular, I'd also like to mention that Arnie was an author and editor of numerous works um, of prose, including Black Women, Black Life, 
um, talking about country, uh, message stick, con- contemporary Aboriginal writing, Mamagula, uh, belonging here, stories and poems, um, the strength of us, black women speak, as well as um, quite a few edited collections like A Pocket Full of Leadership and Too Deadly, Our Voice, Our Way and Our Business. She was also a visual artist and the Australian Institute of Aboriginal Studies in Canberra now has quite an extensive collection of her visual works. What an amazing, um, well-rounded introduction of who Auntie Perry is and, and was. Thank you so much for that. Judith, did you have something to say on that? You were looking at me. No. Just, oh. I, I, well, I think it's such, she's such an amazing woman. Mm. And I'm wondering, I mean, I, like, I, I haven't read The Cherry Picker's Daughter. I'm about to go out and get it. It's only recently come out. Am I right about that? That's right. Probably a, about a week or so ago. Yes, so yeah. it's right hot off the press. And yeah. uh, I'm just, uh, I'm going to go to my local library this afternoon, but they may not have it yet, but I'll order it. Mm. <laughs> They're very good that way, actually. Yeah. Yes, but how did the memoir come about? This memoir was a long time in the making. Um, the actual release itself, I should say, this is, is a foundation title in a new imprint from Wild Dingo Press, um, I'd like to commend Waldingo Press for um, bringing out this very brave story and the publisher acknowledges the importance of bringing this story to the light of day as well. This, this book has many things in it and there's a lot in here about the process of writing as well as the incredible story that unfolds. She actually began writing this story in 2006 when she won an arts residency to the Ghent in New York and did that mean she went to New York? She to went to New York and did a My residency and it was, she talks about that often um, as being one of the highlights of her writing life because she got to go there for um, a couple of months and begin to write this book, begin. Um, it was a very long time in the making and I think it's really important for people to read the book to get a sense of process and story. Yes. Um, yeah. And what was involved in writing the book. And memoir. A lot of memory, a terrible lot of memory. Not all of it was easy. And there were people to talk to as well. This book is a family story as well. Mm. And there were many people to talk to. Mm. And that is all beautifully, as well as Carrie's life and the life of Arnie Joyce and Carrie's um, siblings, and the and the life of Aboriginal people in the 50s, 60s and 70s. It chronicles that beautifully, but it also is a wonderful exercise in process and how you write a memoir and how you have to constantly keep thinking and you think several times it might be finished. She writes it from her as a child, uh, a child's perspective. That's really valuable. I um, mentioned that in a forthcoming review that there are several life writing examples by Aboriginal women but this one differs very much in the fact that it she begins with a child's voice and she sustains that voice throughout Mm. a large part of the book and that is all the more poignant for the way she sees things as a child. Mm. And Auntie Kerry throughout the book also um, describes herself as a fruit picker by trade. Oh, absolutely. Um, the cherries are so important. And 
like the cherries are not just um, the fruit. And Aunty Carrie was a poet, and there's some beautiful images in here of mm. her as a child. Many different kinds of fruit trees, the ripe fruit and the low-hanging fruit. It's, it's really poetic. Mm. She says with pride at the start of another chapter, you name it, we can pick it. Mm-hmm. Much of the cherry picker's daughter is set in the paddocks and orchards that the settler farmers planted over Wiradjuri country. But the fruits, in particular cherries, and I think this is a really important point, the fruits, the cherries in particular, are not just luscious commodities to grace the tables of settlers or the shelves of supermarkets. Aunt writes, these cherries are our ticket to a new life, a house, and escaping the welfare. When I was reading it, I haven't finished it yet, but... Through the child's eyes, so through Carrie's eyes, um, we see this fear of the welfare man and the protectors, white Australia policy and racism. And um, the character that you've touched on lightly that we can speak about as well, Mummy, the strength of Mummy Mm. and their identity as Aboriginal people. It felt like that got them through those horrible times of fear and... Tough times. They were in many ways horrible times. But when I was having a conversation with um, the person I'm discussing the panel on the panel tonight, we talked about the amount of times in this book. Uh, Arnie says, "I'm happy. I'm walking on air. We're happy people. Mm. We're lucky people." And it was the strength of of Mummy who got them through. She actually, you haven't got to the end yet, but um, <laughs> she acknowledges that very strongly in the end. But also up front, I noted that for those people who are familiar with Aboriginal literature more broadly and the black history of Australia, the title of this memoir will resonate because in 1968, Kevin Gilbert penned what was described as the first Aboriginal play called The Cherry Pickers while serving a life sentence for the murder of his first wife, Arnie Carey's mother, Gorma Mm -hmm. Scott Gilbert, in 1957. But in the postscript to this book, Artie says, People often mistake the cherry picker's daughter as being written for my father, but it's not. It's written for Mummy, Jacqueline Joyce Hutchins, near Gilbert, the most amazing Aboriginal woman who was my mother. And we see Mummy many times bending her back. Um, She picks fruit, she goes stick picking, she fells trees, she cleans houses. There's another beautiful scene up front where Carrie, as a four-year-old, goes with Mummy to clean the house of wealthy settlers in the town close by. And the way she points out the difference between this dwelling and where they, where her and her family live on an island and they have to walk through these riverbeds called the gutters to get back to it. And... It's so poignant because it begins with this description of this big house that mummy cleans for money and it ends by saying we go back to the island where we belong. Mm. And and why is Auntie Kerry's story so important? Look, it's important for several reasons. It's important because one of the things she wanted to to achieve was was first and foremost a tribute to mummy and a broader tribute to family. But also she wanted people to realise that what life was like for Aboriginal people during those times. There's a bit towards the end where she's going on one of her last car trips with Mummy and she's describing beautifully the Wiradjuri dust and the colour. 
of the landscape and she says while she's out there in the car, Mummy's story tugs at her heartstrings because she wants it to make sure that some of these kind of things never happen to other people again. Mm. There's a beautiful passage in there too when it's tragic but it's beautifully told when Martin Luther King is assassinated and Mummy is watching it on television and the kids come in and Mummy's crying because of the death of Martin Luther King and Carrie, still as a child in 1968, knows that Martin Luther King was a special black man and she said, I love the way he said, we have a dream and she says, we need a dream here and we do mm-hmm. and I think that's a big reason why she wrote the book. Mm. And how will you be celebrating Auntie Kerry Reed Gilbert tonight? Tonight I'm going to, tonight we have a bit longer at the Wheeler Centre and tonight I'm going to share some actual excerpts from her book and let people hear her voice. There is a very special piece of footage that she was, is one of her last messages to the world that we will be showing at the event tonight at the Wheeler Centre. And I think, you know, the most important celebration of it is that it sees the light of day because that is, that was her last wish. Yeah. Yeah. I think it sounds just wonderful. And uh, unfortunately, I'm busy tonight or I would have uh, gone, but it's a free event. It's a free event and you can get tickets just by going on to the Wheeler Centre and it's up front there and I believe it's going to be recorded. Oh, good. Oh, well, I'm so Catch it if you can't go, but it'd be great to see a lot of people there. Yeah. I urge our listeners to make make their way down to the Wheeler Centre So that's 6.15 at the Wheeler Centre. 6.15, that's perfect. Thank you. Thank you, Janine, so much for coming in. And we're going to head to a little bit of music now, I think. And here we go. It's been wonderful to meet you and to hear from you today. Thank you so much. Thank you.
You're listening to 3CR. Who was that, Judith? <laughs> that was Jamal Gunura um, and uh, the Tinju Desert Band. Nice. I think it means grandma, grandfather country, actually. That's Beautiful. Song. It is, yeah. And before the break, we were speaking to Janine Lane um, about... Auntie Kerry Reed Gilbert's the cherry picker's daughter. And do get down to see that if you can tonight at 6.15 at the Wheeler Centre. And now we're going to finish up the show with a brimful of Asher. So I spoke to Ravi Jane about his show at the Melbourne International Arts Festival, A Brimful of Asher. It's a Canadian story about the cultural and generational clashes between Canadian and Indian. And I started by asking Ravi to tell me a little bit more about his show. The show is a conversation between me and my real-life mother, who's not an actor, and we tell the story of how in 2007 my parents tried to arrange my marriage in India, and it didn't go so well. So that that did actually happen? Oh, it actually happened, yeah. (laughs) And uh, I grew up in Canada. My mom's from India but immigrated to Canada uh, in the 70s. And, yeah, it actually happened, and it was funny. After it happened, you know, I was pretty traumatized, but every person I told the story to you know, laughed really hard. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I thought, oh, I should make this a story. Uh, And I was going to create a one-man show, and I was living with my mom, and I told her I was going to make this one-man show and tell the world what a bad mother she was. said, uh, you know, you're an idiot. If I was on stage with you, the audience would see, they'd sympathize with me and see what an idiot son I am. And so I said, okay, let's put your money where your mouth is. Oh, wow. Wow, that's incredible. So, firstly, it is, it's a Canadian story, and it is a story also of the generational and cultural clashes. So can you just talk to us a bit more about how these two cultures clash? Well, yeah, I mean, um, you know, uh, in Indian culture, it's pretty traditional to have your parents determine a lot of your future for you, um, especially when you've immigrated. You know, they've come to a new country for a better, better life for their kids. Or so I've been told by my parents. Um, mm-hmm. And, yeah, so the cultures really clash around self-determining what you think is right for you and your future and what your parents think is right for you and your future and striking a balance between those two things. So mm-hmm. even pursuing the arts growing up was really hard. I was lucky because my parents um, were supportive, but they always had anticipated me coming back, you know, to my sense at some point. Yeah. Um, and, and have you? And <laughs> have you? Have you got there yet? No, no I haven't. I mean, I think I won now because I dragged her into it. So. <laughs> now she's hooked. Yeah, victory. I love the idea that you've brought your mum on stage with you. But I wonder, did she take direction very well? Or your direction? You know what? It, we really created it together. And um, I said from the start, you know, if we're going to do this together, then she needs to feel like her voice is... Um, um, equal to mine, mm-hmm. and we really never had an issue. Um, you know, she's frustrating because she never wants to rehearse. Um, <laughs> yeah, so she was always very, um, you know, the process was really easy in a lot of ways in that it was just kind of the two of us hanging out. Initially, I, I kind of thought that getting on stage in front of a live audience to speak about the clashes in culture or just or just how sh- or how Asha has has parented I thought initially maybe she took a lot of convincing to get up there but by the sounds of it it wasn't that hard to convince her to get up on stage no you know it wasn't and she's she's 
normally quite a shy person. Like, she would never get on a microphone, you know, to give a speech or something. She's very good one-on-one with folks. And I think that she was just inspired by wanting to share her story with people. And when it started originally, like, she still will get a little nervous if she feels like the audience is judging her or, um, you know, uh, you know, sharing her story is a vulnerable thing. But now we've done it enough times that she feels quite confident about, you know, her point of view. And a lot of audiences also give her a lot of love afterwards. So, yeah. um, you know, she's kind of empowered by that. Mm. And it all takes place over a dinner table, right? That's right, yeah. So the feeling of the show is really like, you know, I wanted her, because she's not comfortable in the theater, so I wanted... You know, her to be for us when we arrive at the theater, we need to be in her space, yeah. not her being the foreigner in a theater space. So the feeling is if you came to our house and, you know, you come on in, you meet us, you come on stage directly, you come say hi to me and my mom, mm-hmm. we offer you some food. Um, and, you know, the, the feeling is really as if you came to our house for a dinner party and we have a conversation. Um, and she, you know, the kitchen in our house is where she's reigns queen because, you know, we were three men in the house, my dad and me and my brother, and we're always kind of in and out. And the kitchen was where we'd always convene. And yeah. my mom was sort of queen there. Yeah, because there's a there's a beautiful um, platter of like samosas and tea. Yeah, you know, and it's like so much of my culture, you know, it's so funny. Like, you know, people always make fun of. Uh, you know, even my mom will say, you know, Indians, we don't do theater. We're not in the theater. And, like, mm. my poor son, why are you doing this dumb thing? But the reality is, you know, theater is every day in our lives at the kitchen table. And those stories that we all tell and share around food and with, with strangers or guests in our home, like, that's – I grew up that way. That's why my mom is such a brilliant, actually, performer, is we used to have parties all the time where immigrants, you know – we all kind of banded together. So they just came to her. We had food and parties and sharing stories. And so that, for me, is like a real callback to growing up. That's just what we always did. And because you speak directly to the audience, you are inviting them in straight away to to laugh with you and to understand the, the point of view that you're coming from. I did wonder, is this something that really you have been performing and writing for a long time? It seems so like you're just chatting to your mates about something that your mum's just gone and done. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the experience, and uh, it's a ton of fun. And, yeah, and it's the kind of thing where, you know, nobody in the audience is pressured to, you know, there's not audience participation or nobody's chiming in, but we make you feel like you're part of it, which is, which is a fun part of that. And who was the primary primary audience that you wrote the play for? And and is it the same audience that you find comes to see the show? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, we, uh, having my mom in it, I really wanted her authentic voice to be represented. And I wanted, you know, aunties and uncles to come see the play and really hear their point of view represented. And that's totally happens. And it's awesome to see them there and go, wow, that's, that's my story, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I meet a lot of people who are like me and grew up kind of straddling two cultures. So they're Iranian Canadian or Greek Canadian, Italian Canadian. A lot of old cultures have these, have this tradition of arranged marriage in their cultures. And 
they are all straddling these two worlds. So what's really lovely is I get to see an audience, you know, if it's, you know, let's say primarily Australians and then a, a handful of Indian people or people who know the experience of what we're talking about, what I love is you kind of get two different laughs happening at the same time. So you'll have the Indian folks who kind of know where the joke is going and know where the story is going and laugh beforehand. And then kind of the Australians or the Canadians or the internationals who kind of get the joke when the punchline comes, if you know what I mean. And so that was the first part of my conversation with Ravi about his show, A Brimful of Asher, which is a Canadian Indian story about the cultural and general clashes. And it comes head to head when his mum takes him to India to find a wife. So now we're going to just hear where the name A Brimful of Asher comes from. And we're just going to head some straight into a little bit of music straight after. So where is the name of the show from? So it's the title of a song, actually. It's a pop song called A Brimful of Asher by a UK group called Corner Shop. And the song is actually about a very famous Bollywood singer named Asha Bosley. But I, I use the title because Asha is my mom's name, and Asha means hope. And I was thinking when we were making the show, a lot of, you know, Canadians or, let's say, white folks, um, mm-hmm. their approach to arranged marriage is very negative. And for me, it really is an exercise in hope. It's about wanting the best for your kids, wanting the best for your own life. And I wanted to kind of share it in a positive light. So the the title being full of hope um, really resonated with me. So you're listening to Corner Shops, a brimful of Asha. Brimful of Asher by Corner Shop and also Ravi Jane speaking to us about his show A Brimful of Asher which is going to be at the Melbourne International Arts Festival and you can check it out online to get some tickets if you fancy going. Yes, it sounds fantastic. And so big thank you to all our guests. And you know what, especially this morning, because, you know, daylight saving, not only do you have to get up early to come into Monday breakfast, but you also, you know, lost an hour of the weekend. So big thanks to everyone who joined us. Absolutely. And see you next week. Thanks for listening to a Monday breakfast podcast on 3CR.